their fellow redeemed. We consider briefly our reading from Matthew chapter 2. And as we begin, um, it's probably one of those, you know, cartoons or um, maybe one of those funny things you see floating around on Facebook that when the three wise men, however many there were, two or more at least, after the wise men leave, then the wise women show up with casseroles and diapers and offers to rock the baby to sleep. And it's kind of humorous because we understand that. We understand that when there's a new baby in the house, then it kind of throws everything into conundrum and confusion for a little while. And you understand and appreciate some of the things that people might do at that time that they show up with, with a meal or maybe, maybe with an offer to hold the baby so that you can kind of get yourself reorganized again after a few days without. But why? At least in comparison, we don't know of any, any such women who came to visit. Maybe Elizabeth and Zachariah stopped by. Maybe some other family from the area had continued to provide for them. We don't know exactly what those people had done. But we do know that these, these magi showed up. These wise men, as we call them. We don't know how many there were. There were at least two because there's a plural there. It may have been 20 or 30. It was certainly enough to, to throw the entire city of Jerusalem into confusion. And if it was just three guys with their camels... That probably wouldn't do it. We know that they, they brought these gifts of gold and of frankincense and of myrrh, gifts that were expensive and perhaps would have some other medicinal use or would definitely come in handy in the next few days when King Herod would try to exterminate all the baby boys living in the vicinity of Bethlehem. We know a little bit when they came. We can narrow it down a little bit that it was after, after the circumcision of Jesus was the eighth day after his birth, the purification of Mary at the temple when they brought in the, the two doves or the two birds and Simeon and Anna were there. That was roughly 40 days after Jesus' birth. And Jesus is described as a young child. So that at least opens up the door to Jesus being a little bit older, maybe a year old, maybe a year and a half old, that for a period of time, maybe they lived in Bethlehem there. They lived there not in a stable, but in a house, because that's where the Magi came. These Magi, we don't know exactly where they came from, although there are numerous Old Testament prophecies of kings coming to the brightness of your dawn, and of foreign Gentile nations coming from Sheba and Tarshish, bringing treasure to God's temple. Even that word magi, probably, you know, the modern equivalent would be like an astrologer, astronomer, because we, we separate those things out, and rightfully so, I think, where astronomy is the science of, of understanding the movement of the stars, all the things that NASA does. And astrology is trying to derive meaning from the position of those stars for my life. But at their time, those two things basically overlapped. Astrologers, astronomers, 
wise men, magi like, like Daniel and, um, and the other Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego serving as wise men and advisors in the Persian and Babylonian courts. But even that word magi, where we get our modern word magic and magician. And these men who, who had some understanding of the stars and who apparently had had some sort of prophecy directly from God, maybe passed down from the Babylonian captives, maybe Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they had been waiting for this sign, this sign in the stars. And so when they see this sign, they, they come to Jerusalem. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. A fairly large, um, you know, like the modern equivalent of a few semi-trucks, perhaps, with all of their equipment and all of their gear and all of their gifts. And the entire city of Jerusalem is thrown into confusion. The one born king of the Jews? King Herod knows that he doesn't have a claim to the Jewish throne, but somebody who has been born a king has a claim to that throne. That numerous times throughout history, somebody who has um, been born has, been become a, has become a king, but this is the only time in history where one who is a king became a child. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. They've come to worship him, and that's the whole point. That they didn't come bearing their, their casseroles and diapers because babies need those things. They came to worship him. And when they get directed to the place and the star traveled that little bit to show them the place where the child was staying with his family, they bowed down and worshiped him and presented to that child their gifts of gold and of frankincense and of myrrh. These gifts, fit for a king, laid before the feet of a child who maybe three, four, five months previously had only just learned how to walk. That's the king that we have. And what should we learn from these magi, these wise men? Of all the, of all the things that we might learn from them, the lesson that we want to learn from our Lord is not the lesson of casseroles and diapers are greater than or are lesser than gold and frankincense and myrrh. Of all the lessons that God teaches us through these wise men, the first and foremost is that God keeps his promises exactly as he said. On this day of Epiphany, which is the 12th day of the season of Christmas, always falling on, falling on January 6th, on the day of Epiphany, the exact promise that God had made to Abraham that through his seed all nations would be blessed, that promise is fulfilled. As these Gentiles recognize, the one who has been born king of the Jews is also king of the world. That God keeps his promises. But also that God keeps his promises despite our opinion and despite the appearance that God kept his promise in sending this king of the Jews and king of the world for our salvation, and he kept that promise despite the fact that this little child in all likelihood still needed those diapers. They came to worship him based on the word of God, 
based on a revelation from God and, and zoomed in and tightened in a little bit there from the prophet Micah in verses 5 and 6. In Bethlehem of Judea, because this was written through the prophets. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among all the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. That God keeps his promises, despite the appearances to the contrary, and despite any opinion on the matter that you or I might have. That it would be simple enough for those men to show up at the house and say, okay, where's the king? Oh, he's, he's right here. But based on the word of God and based on the words of the prophet, they have come to worship him. And he is worthy of that worship. He is worthy of that worship whether he appears on the clouds of heaven with all of his power and glory and might, whether he appears at the Mount of Transfiguration with all of his power, glory, and might, or whether he hides that power, glory, and might there at the cross. He's worthy of that worship, both by, the, by Abraham, who is standing outside, and God says to him, I will give to you one who will be a blessing to all people. And he is worthy of that worship when he is there crawling around the room in Bethlehem. And he is worthy of that worship still today. That our Lord doesn't need us to bring casseroles and diapers, or even gold and frankincense and myrrh. What he needs, what he wants, is your heart. Because that's the worship that the Magi brought. The gifts and the traveling was just evidence of that fact. But they were directed by the words of the prophet, and they were directed there to the house of the king of the world, not just the one born king of the Jews, but the one who would be born as the savior for the Gentiles too. And so they have come to worship, and we have as well, that he wants your heart. And I guess the question there, does he have it? Does he have it? I understand. And that... I understand that a lot of times, maybe we don't see the big picture. That we don't see the big picture of what's the connection between my, my worship here and the work of our church. What's the connection between the accounts I learned in Sunday school or catechism and my everyday life? I understand that it is simple enough to say this is what we do, so I go to church, or I tune in online, but it's just something that I keep tucked in my back pocket until that day when life is getting me down or I've experienced a loss. And then, then everything comes into sharp clarity for a while. I understand that. But my greatest fear pastorally isn't, isn't that Jesus would fall through when you need him most. My greatest fear pastorally is that 
the times when we think that we don't need him, that our hearts start wandering and turning away. My greatest fear pastorally is that in some degree, to a greater or lesser extent, that through what I say or what I don't say, that the heart Jesus wants would be lulled into the idea that this is just part of what I do. And the mind that Jesus wants to conform to his word will be instead shaped by the world around us. Will instead be shaped by the world around us to such a degree that that my Christian faith is simply what I do. And it's what I grew up with. But most of my friends my own age don't do that whole church thing. That my Christian values or ethics or morals are what I grew up with. But most of my friends don't see the value in that. And quite frankly, I don't either. At least when nobody else really knows about it. And my greatest fear as a pastor is hidden in this truth that God keeps his promises and yet he keeps those promises despite appearances to the contrary and despite any appearance that that we can perceive his work because the the terrifying part is that Jesus wants your heart and mine And were it to depend on us, were it to depend on us where the Bible remains closed on the shelf and the Bible reading app is never used, we'll be swept along by what sounds right rather than what is biblical. And the reality is that Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, the one whom the Magi traveled across a great distance, we don't know how far, it probably only took them a good two weeks to get there at most, that this Jesus Christ, whom the Magi came to visit, is the same Jesus who wants your heart, is the same Jesus who holds on to your heart through the exact same way that he brought the Magi there. Not through a simple miracle in the sky, because that miraculous sign in the sky would have meant nothing apart from the revelation from God, whether through Daniel or through the other prophets. That revelation that not only was there one who has been born king of the Jews, but that this king of the Jews is worthy of my worship because he's my king too. That among all the gifts that I could bring this Jesus that among all the things that I could do for this Jesus, whether it's something that seems so practical, like like diapers and casseroles, or, or cleaning the church, or whatever the case may be, among all the things that seem so practical, or all the treasure that would sacrifice, be sacrificed to this king of the world, but one thing he wants is our heart. And it's always terrifying. <laughs> Because that's the one thing that that pastor can't see and know. And that is the one thing that God himself must accomplish through his word. And that sounds so simple. And it's so easy to dismiss. Why would I be here worshiping a little toddler 
and presenting to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh after traveling and preparing to travel for the last month. It seems so preposterous. Here is the king of the Jews. Here is the king of the world. And his appearance risks offending us to such a point that rather than recognizing Jesus as the king of the Jews and the king of my heart, it's easy to dismiss him as that thing we do on Sunday morning when it fits. Dear friends, the message of the Magi isn't that different from the promises of God that we've heard before. But the message of the Magi and those promises of God is that God keeps His promise, and God keeps fulfilling His promises even when all appearances look to the contrary. And God keeps fulfilling His promises and is faithful to His promises even when, to us, it looks like God isn't doing a whole lot. Or it looks like what God is doing is so simple and straightforward, it's as easily dismissed as a little child crawling around the floor. But the promise of God is that He continues to come to His people. That, yes, He still wants your heart. And the one way He does that is exactly through that word. That this Jesus we worship is, yes, a real person who is a little over 2,000 years old at the same time as the eternal Son of God. And He was worthy of all of their gifts and all of ours. And He is worthy of all of your attention and all of your heart. That the Jesus we worship is, yes, He is your, your nearest and dearest friend. But He's the one who carried your sin in mind. He's the one who, who chose to be born among people whose hearts continually strayed from Him. He's the one who washed you clean in holy baptism, who gave you a new life. He's the one who continues and who has given you a family of believers that meets here at the Lord's table. He is the one. He is the one who wants to conform your heart and your life so that even if the day comes when you're standing all alone on what you believe, that you will know you will never be alone. Because this Jesus, this King of the Jews, King of the world, is King in your heart, too. And the message of the Magi is, I mean, yes, it's the same message that we see throughout the rest of Scripture, that God makes a promise, God keeps a promise, God is faithful to His promises, despite all appearances. But the message of the Magi is to take another look, dear friends. And don't let the realities and the facts of our faith be something that are so familiar as to be dismissed or forgotten. Let the realities and the facts of our faith be, be cause for rejoicing that they came to worship the King of the Jews, and this is your King too. That they came presenting Him with, with gifts. But most of all, laying before Him their hearts, 
and that maybe others came with, with other gifts that appeared to be more practical or perhaps more sensible for a family with a newborn child. That may be. But even so, that would be prompted by that same faith. That the faith that God has created in your heart is a heart that loves to worship this King Jesus. In whatever way he appears, whether it was King Jesus there in the manger on Christmas Eve, or King Jesus there as a toddler, or King Jesus as a 12-year-old sitting among those at the temple, or King Jesus there at the cross, there at the empty tomb, or there at the supper, the same king who has said, Dear Christian, don't, don't zoom and zip by the facts of our faith. These are the facts that form the foundation of your life. And these are the times and the places where we pay attention to the message that God has given, that here you have life, that here you have a spiritual family, that here you have forgiveness, that here you have a God who has chosen to join you in your grief, in your misery, in your pain. You have a God who has chosen to carry your sorrow and your sin in your selfishness. You have a God who has promised you, dear friend, that you have life with him, not just as some far-off reality when God finally takes you to heaven, but you have life with him today and people with whom to share that life as we join together to confess the facts of our faith. And as we join together, not just confessing those facts, because you can read those in Scripture, but in confessing those facts to say, I believe this too. That I want my neighbor to know this and believe this too. That I want my children to be raised in this truth so that they have that same foundation, factual basis for their faith and life. That this King of the Jews is my king too. Amen. <laughs>